Tagore's Red Oleanders consists of many important messages about people, society, and social hierarchies. Given that hierarchies are a consistent aspect of life in which humans represent with societies, these messages maintain importance throughout time. While there might be slight discrepancies with the age or culture of the play, the main messages are ones consistent within humanity and various societies. One message is that those on top of the social hierarchy tend to be more greedy and power-hungry. They maintain the most control and wealth, but use it to increase their own power instead of sharing it to boost others. Conversely, they use those lower than them to boost themselves. This is evident in the way the diggers must slave away mining gold for the royalty. While the royalty already have plenty of power and wealth, they enforce the diggers to continue plundering the earth for gold. Despite the diggers doing all of the work, they're forced to work indefinitely, in the dark, with little rest, and they're prohibited from visiting home, rather than receiving their own cut of wealth or enjoying luxuries like the royalty. Although America's economy is not imperialistic, we do have a capitalist economy that functions similarly. All the top corporations and wealthy individuals maintain power and privilege over those at the bottom of the society. Often, they take advantage of the lower class's needs and desires for financial gain, causing the lower class to become dependent on the top corporations. This dependency gives the top corporations a form of power and control over the lower class that they continue to take advantage of for their own gain. Therefore, Tagore's play is a message about the inequality that social hierarchies tend towards within human societies, and the greed of many people to just go after what they want, no matter the costs or who it negatively affects. It supports those on the bottom by bringing awareness to the discrepancy within the social hierarchy and the issues that that discrepancy causes. A current social hierarchy issue in America is that white people make up the majority of those at the top, while people of color are the minorities due to systematic oppression. America also tends to be xenophobic and wary of other countries, particularly to those that are not European. Tagore's play works against this discrimination in more ways than one. While the content of Red Oleanders literally serves to support the minorities and call out those at the top, it was also written from the perspective of a Bengali author, someone who is not white or from America. The production and study of this play, I believe, rivals that of studying Shakespeare, a classical European author whose work contributes to the oppression of work by people of color due to its popularity. While there is nothing inherently wrong with studying Shakespeare, the widespread study of it cuts away from the possible study of other diverse works. Throughout Red Oleanders, Tagore seems to favor nature, creating a lot of metaphors that revolve around nature. He also ascribes many positive depictions of the natural way versus negative depictions of people tampering with Earth. On page 3, Nandini says, It puzzles me to see a whole city thrusting its head underground, groping with both hands in the dark. Later on page 8, she adds, The living heart of the earth gives itself up in love and life and beauty, but when you rend its bosom and disturb the dead, you bring up with your booty the curse of its dark demon, blind and hard, cruel and envious. She uses these metaphors to express her disgust with the people of Yakshatown hungering for more than the earth openly supplies them with. Despite the necessary resources already graciously provided by nature, these people are literally digging further than necessary in their greed for more, upsetting the natural balance. The professor emphasizes this by stating on page 5 that All creatures fear an eclipse, not the full sun. Yakshatown is a city under eclipse. Then he tells Nandini to go. 
Live happily with Ranjan, where people in their drunken fury don't tear the Earth's veil to pieces. He uses natural occurrences to express the disturbance to Earth's state, as if nature itself is expressing its own anger. On page 9, the king states, Underground there are blocks of stone, iron, gold. There you have the image of strength. On the surface grows the grass, the flower blossoms. There you have the play of magic. I can extract gold from the fearsome depths of secrecy, but to wrest that magic from the near at hand, I fail. Strength is something that many possess, but there are limits to it. Magic is something otherworldly in which one knows no bounds. It is a fantastical idea that is much more beautiful or powerful than simple strength. To apply the adjective magic to nature and strength to these material possessions places nature in a much higher place that overpowers everything else. Later on page 10, he states, In a far-off land, I saw a mountain as weary as myself. I could not guess that all its stones were aching inwardly. One night I heard a noise, as if some giant's evil dream had moaned and moaned and suddenly snapped asunder. Next morning I found the mountain had disappeared in the chasm of a yawning earthquake. That made me understand how overgrown power crushes itself inwardly by its own weight. Considering these ideas that nature is powerful and to act against it and greed for more will likely lead to negative consequences allows us to reflect on our present life. There's nothing natural about our current way of life. Our culture has advanced so greatly and veered away from relying on nature to relying on science and technology. While advancing, we've churned... And while advancing, we've churned many territories we probably shouldn't have, and we're just destroying our own environment. Which goes back to the king's mountain metaphor where he states that overgrown power crushes itself inwardly by its own weight. It's clear that that's quite literally what we are doing to ourselves. Although we are increasing our power and improving our lives in many ways, we are also dooming ourselves, along with many other species that we're dragging down with us. As Bishu says on page 16, There's always an end to things of need, no doubt. So we stop when we've had enough to eat. But we don't need drunkenness. Therefore, there's no end to it. We don't need all these advancements for survival, but we strongly desire them, and we've become so dependent on them that we don't know when to quit. Tagore uses many important metaphors like this throughout his play. However, they can dim the clarity of the story. While they make for a very powerful message, the consistency of them and the language of the play instead make it difficult for many readers to comprehend the smaller messages in the overall story. If the goal is to spread awareness and to make a statement, it's important that the majority of people actually understand what's being said and are able to maintain interest in the story. While I acknowledge his brilliance and the age of the play, I wonder if a contemporary adaptation would bring more attention to it in our current society. I'm unsure if it's because of the cultural difference or a lack of story comprehension, but I also felt that some of the relationships between the characters were a bit odd. It seems that Nandini has a lot of romantic lovers between Bishu and Kishore, her devotion to Ranjan, and her connection to the king and the professor. I particularly find her relationship with the king and the professor to be confusing, as they seem to be the reason she's in Yaksha Town. They're clearly fascinated with her, possibly in a romantic way, as the king persistently asks if she likes him as much as Ranjan, and the professor seems to allude to wanting to have sex with her on page 3 when he says, Come to my room, 
For a moment, allow me to be reckless in my waste of time. Yet, Nandini is also against their ways of life, and they argue about it a lot. Which also makes me wonder who she was outside of Yaksha Town, and why she was taken. Was it simply for her beauty? Who does that make her in Yaksha Town? A prisoner? A citizen? A mistress? Her role in tearing down Yaksha Town society is clear to me, but as a person, she's a mystery. The main message of greedy upper class and struggling lower class is apparent, but I think with a clearer story and background, it would make the overall experience much more entertaining and allow for people to maintain better focus so that they grasp even the finer messages sprawled throughout the play. Bloopers. Rather than receiving their own cut of wealth or enjoying luxuries, like, luxuries. Later on page age, she adds, Later on page eight, page, page eight, my god. Places Nair in, Nair? 